Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Don't worry about that strange sound that you're hearing. It's just me. That's episode 318 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and you're going to want to turn your volume up for sure on this one because we're going to be talking about The Vast of Night, which is a brand new sci-fi movie coming to Amazon Prime Video, actually available now if you want to go ahead and watch that after you're done listening because you are going to want to hear from both of the stars that movie, I've got Jake Horowitz with me this week, who plays Everett, and I also have Sierra McCormick, who plays Faye Crocker. These are characters you're going to fall in love with in this movie and in this story back in the 1950s, New Mexico. There's a strange sound. There's an investigation. We're going to dive in to what it was like to be a part of that. Plus, speaking of diving in, the final season of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. kicked off this week. I've got my spoiler-filled review of that, and... You know, maybe a, a Superman's going to return. Are there going to be more cuts of movies that are going to get released? Plenty of nerd news to talk about. But we're going to kick things off, yeah, like we always do. It's with comics. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Uh, hey, this is comic book author and creator Matt Wagner, and you're here with the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Feels good to be bagging and boarding again. Or, hey, maybe you're still doing the digital thing. Whatever you're reading on it's time for what we're reading. And this is a book I actually want to review the first issue of. Never did get around to it, but hey, one pandemic later and a huge delay. Let's talk about Mercy number two from Image Comics from Mirka Andolfo doing the writing, the art, and the colors, actually getting a little bit of a a color assist from Gianluca Poppy and Fabio Emilia doing the letters. By the way, both of them from Arinkia Studios, by the way. So if you're, and, and they actually did the translation into English. For this too. Now, in case you didn't catch the first issue of Mercy, it seems like there's some sort of devil going on in the town of Woodsboro, and something terrible happened at a mine years and years ago. And there's actually a woman that got blamed for it, or at least her husband got blamed for it anyway, and she was sort of left behind. In all of this, and she managed to escape, but now the town is being visited by a very mysterious woman, the Lady Helena, and she's actually, you know, like a socialite, very rich, and she's throwing a party for the people of Woodsburg, you know, kind of like to, you know, get to know the neighbors sort of thing and get people to like her more than anything else. Her intentions are really still somewhat unclear, though, other than the obvious, which I won't spoil because that was... I mean, you kind of understand what's going on if you read the first issue, but if you didn't and you're trying to play catch up, I'm I'm not really going to spoil it for you. But this is one of those, she's a woman that's, that would definitely attract attention. I mean, and some people are smitten with her immediately. There's others that are just intrigued by her, and there's some that are suspicious. One woman in particular that is very, very suspicious. But there's a young girl named Rory that we meet in the first story. She's kind of an orphan And she just wants to kind of not only find her mom, who she's never met, but she also is kind of looking for her place, right? And she's stuck with, like, in this sweatshop type of situation, right? Spinning cotton or something. But she actually does something. She does a favor that puts her at a great risk. But it also might have put her in the right place at the right time, ironically enough, as you kind of see... The story unfold, and this is a feisty little girl too. So she kind of interjects herself somewhere that she doesn't really belong, but it ends up again working out in her favor. Almost doesn't, but it ends up working out in her favor. This issue also gives us a very shocking reveal and a bit, and a bit of an interesting twist at the end. And it, you, it makes you wonder: okay, is this a, is this connected? Is this not connected? Is there actually something to this? Because there's certainly hints that get dropped at the end of this issue. Once you read it, you'll understand what I mean. Now, this book is beautiful. I mean, the art in this book is stunning from start to finish. The first issue, 
the same way. You What you see on the cover, that's what you're going to get, and then some on the interior pages of this book. And this, this book just has like an eeriness to it that's really, really hard to describe. And you wonder if what certain characters are seeing, is it real? Is it Are, are they crazy? Is there something going on, you know, from the mine or something like that? Obviously, there was something otherworldly that happened years ago. There's no denying that. But what's happening now and what's the connection to present day, if there is any? And then there's, there's this other group of four mysterious people that are just randomly out in the woods and they come across something from the end of the first issue and their reaction to it and what they end up doing. And you see at the end, like, what on earth are you guys doing? So there's those like mysteries on top of mysteries here that are very, very interesting to me anyway. And, and, and Rory is just one of those characters where, again, this little girl is feisty and it, to me, it feels like she's going to be playing a big role in this story going forward. And the second issue only confirms that for me. I mean, put this in your pull box now. If you're not reading Mercy yet, go pick up the first two issues and make sure you don't miss the third because that's going to be the end of the first arc. And I can't wait to see where that goes. We've seen Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys team up before in the pages of Dynamite Comics, but this time it's a little bit more somber. We're talking about the death of Nancy Drew Number one from Dynamite Comics, it's Anthony DeCall on the writing, Joe Isma on the art, Crank doing the letters as well. Now, the title, I mean, kind of gives away, you know, what this book's about and how it starts off, right? But you, you actually get to see the events that sort of lead up to what would be Nancy's ultimate demise. It's actually, the book's narrated by Joe Hardy of the Hardy Boys. Now, it kind of actually shows the path that, that Nancy took before her death. And now the script is kind of flipped in this. I mean, almost beat for beat actually, because now you're getting, now it's basically the investigation of the death of a very great detective. And, you know, depending on who you're talking to, someone that's much more than that. But again, as you, as you see what happens with Nancy, in the early part of the story and how things get plotted out. Then you see how Joe's investigation goes and it's their, it's their mood that almost parallels each other. It's very, very interesting how that happened. And I don't know if that was on purpose or not. Now there's some, there's a few different elements here and there to it, but, but the gist of it is, is pretty much the same in their demeanor. Anyway, that is until the bombshell that gets dropped at the end of this issue, and I still am not sure how I feel about it. And I really can't say more than that without spoiling anything, but but I will say that I was conflicted as to whether or not I liked the twist at the end, and especially because it was in the first issue. That much I will tell you. But And again, another thing that I wasn't sure about at first was the art in this book. But then as I'm reading it, it really, really started to grow on me. And I, I like the shading that they had as well. Almost like this, this, this hue to it, like this pale hue at times during the investigation and in the, and in the flashback scenes as well. That was really, really interesting. I don't know if I'm ready to throw this one in the poll box yet, but I'm definitely interested to see how this twist at the end of the first issue pays off. And to me, the direction that that goes in the second issue will determine what I'm going to do with my, reading of this story going forward. That's going to do it for Nerd News up next. It's the final season of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We're going to talk about the first episode with spoilers next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey guys, this is Chloe Bennett from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So who's up for going to a speakeasy? It is the first episode of the final season of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. starting in New York in 1931 and we went there. This week, and here's my spoiler-filled review of that episode, by the way. One thing that this episode did well right off the bat is we had a lot of different things going on as far as, you know, the team splitting up. You had Mac and Coulson trying to track down somebody that they thought could help them with their investigation into the Chronicoms. You get to see the Chronicoms sort of do their thing and sort of infiltrate the police force. You also have Daisy and Deke going to find out what's what was going on and then see if the Chronicons were involved in this crime that happened 
in the city. And then there was another thing, and, it, and this was really, really subtle, but I also thought it was really important. We see Yo-Yo, and, you know, good good news is she's okay after what happened to her last season, or at least it appears that way in the early going anyway. And since they're trying to blend in here, you know, somebody with, you know, robot arms walking around in nineteen in the 1930s is probably going to gonna take, going to, give a lot of undue attention. So, so Simmons actually gives Yo-Yo these, you know, these, these new arms basically to replace it. And, and Yo-Yo doesn't want to do it. She, she said, you know, I don't want to forget that this happened, but you know, you got to do what you got to do for the team. So she does it to blend in. And you see this really emotional moment for, because these arms that, that Simmons has given her, she's going to be able to feel, they're going to feel real for the first time. Ever. And it was the emotion that came from that. It was very quick. It was very subtle, but it was a very necessary moment, I thought, to see where Yo-Yo's head was at. I just thought that that was a brilliant thing to include. That they absolutely didn't have to. But again, th- this was an episode where it just showed that they really cared about these individual characters. Now, as far as Coulson goes, you, you know, we get to see him flipped on in last season's episode. But then once he gets, once we see the aftermath of that, remember that was that discussion on whether or not to do it. And then you see him get like a lifetime's worth of memories, or at least the last couple of years anyway, in like 30 seconds. And he starts going into shutdown meltdown mode. And you got to think about that for a second, right? What if you woke up from like a, like a coma or something? And then you get what happened in the last two years in 30 seconds all at once. All the good, but you're actually seeing this inside your head. The good memories, the bad memories, everything gets uploaded at the same time. And imagine how you'd react. And the realism in that moment I thought was really, really interesting. And you saw how it affected the team. You know, Mac kind of shut it down and it looked like maybe they weren't going to bring LMD Colson along and then they did and I'm glad they did because LMD Colson is Phil Colson this time it's, we're actually getting Phil Colson not some not some you know person that's just in Phil's body or not some imposter or not somebody from another planet nothing none of that stuff we actually have Phil Colson this time and if and it feels good to have him back quite frankly I mean it's funny how they find ways to keep bringing him back but he's back and we get to see him in his and he's almost like Phil Coulson with no fear, right? Like when he faces down the guns in the speakeasy and he just lets the guy shoot him. And Mac's like, what are you doing? And he's, he's just like, hey, you know, this LMD thing might have its advantages. After all, I loved that. So we're getting Coulson with a little bit of a chip, you know, a little bit less fear. And I think that that's going to work in his favor for sure. I can't wait to see where that goes. And then you also get to see a couple of characters pop up that you didn't expect actually like like Koenig the Koenig character comes back Pat Oswald makes a surprise appearance I mean it's not the same Koenig but it's of the same family anyway and he's the guy that runs the speakeasy and actually you know, he helps them a little bit right he th- he's also thinks they're crazy in a way but he kind of helps forward their investigation and then I love that we get to see we get to see FDR and you think of a, a figure a historical figure like that and you think the chronicoms okay they're after FDR this is what they're going to do to screw up the timeline right but no 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 what what's going on off to the side is you've got these this like bartender named Frankie right and you think he's not important everybody tries to tell you he's not important and usually when that happens you find out that this person was pretty important after all, and then you get to hear the name Malik and you're like, hold on a second. And then you literally get the dots connected for you by these characters. And I'm and, and at first I was like, oh, here we go with Hydra. And then I remembered when we were and where we were. And you remember how integral Hydra was to the formation of S.H.I.E.L.D. in the first place. Right. So then you get the revelation of, okay, so now we've got to save Hydra to save S.H.I.E.L.D. And that is where the intrigue really comes in. I mean, yeah, we're trying to figure out, you know, whether or not they're going to be able to stitch May back up. You know, you've got the whole thing with the Chronicoms wanting to take over the Earth and wanting to basically, you know, make sure that S.H.I.E.L.D. never exists 
in the first place, right? That yeah, that's all well and good, but now we've got the whole we've got to save Hydra to save Shield, and that is absolutely one hundred percent got to cause some conflict within the team going forward. You kind of see maybe a little bit of that starting in the previews for the second episode, but but think about it. There there are going to be members of that team that aren't going to want to see Hydra brought into existence. I mean, if you've got a chance to get rid of Hydra, you'd think you would take it, right? Well, maybe you don't because you don't know. Now, there's one thing that Max says throughout the whole episode. It's ripples, not waves, right? So you can make ripples in time and not waves in time because that's when things start to unravel and you don't know what kind of future you're going back to. There are still plenty of unknowns in this too. Like we still really don't know other than the fact that, you know, they say it's not safe. Why Fitz and Simmons are absolutely 100% have to be separated other than, you know, the Chromicons can't get them both sort of thing. And, and that's almost happened already once before. So, but, but there's that mystery we still don't really know a whole lot about the time jumping, but we know that the Zephyr's kind of unstable right now, even though, I mean, it looks pretty good, right? It looks, I mean, and the fact that it can travel through time now, that seems like it would be a plus. But you've got to try and track, and th this whole first episode basically was trying to track down what the Chronicoms had planned, and the way Simmons just tortures that Chromicon that they capture, right? You forget that when Gemma Simmons wants to be ruthless, she can be pretty damn ruthless. I mean, even Enoch, who is a Chronicom himself, he's just on the good guy side. He's like, you know, if you fry this guy, he's not going to be any good to us. So if you've got everybody but Simmons wanting to back off, that should tell you all you need to know right there. And I mean, there was some cool action, too. Like, you got some good action sequences. You got to see what the Chronicoms could do. They've, they've certainly got some fighting skills. I mean, it took Daisy down. One of my favorite parts... Of this episode, though, was Coulson meeting FDR. Even as, even as an LMD, when Coulson meets Roosevelt, I haven't seen Coulson that excited to meet somebody since he met Captain America for the first time. He was just so, so excited to meet Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That was, that was a really, really cool thing. And, hey, maybe we actually get some historical figures coming into play in this season of, of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And maybe you think that's cheap. Maybe you think that's, oh, well, that's the one thing they haven't done. So in their final season, we're going to tackle time travel. Well, I mean, why not? It actually kind of makes sense given what's going on. I, and I realized they kind of rushed to it and sort of just, it just sort of happened. Oh, well, they could time travel now sort of thing. We haven't really gotten that explanation yet but i mean with just what like 12 episodes left to go do you need that explanation do you really need that spelled out for you or can you just go with it and see where it goes i gotta say that the way that they were able to juggle several different arcs in one episode i was impressed and the attention to detail on character and, and showing you that the characters matter is something we don't often get from agents of shield we certainly they've certainly done a great job with it certain times and then other times not so much. This was one of those times where they did, and I thought that this was a strong debut for the final season of Marvel's Agents of Shield. And are we going to be? Are we going to keep time jumping? How's the team going to feel about having to save Hydra? And it, I mean, who else could pop up next? Because we don't really know where they're going next. It's very, very unpredictable. I figure we got to see Grant Ward at some point, though, right? Especially if we're talking about Hydra, got to see Grant Ward at some point. But we'll have to see how that goes. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the final season premiere. Up next, got some nerd news to tackle and a familiar face returning to the DC movie universe. We'll find out next. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, my name is Mary Mauser from Cobra Kai, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Could he be up, up, and away again? It's time for nerd news, and let's just go ahead and dive right into it right now. The reports that, and there are multiple reports, that Henry Cavill is in negotiations to return as Superman in the DC movie universe. That is the way Deadline first reported it. Now, we've also got comicbook.com coming in and saying that they can not only confirm that, but it will be for several different movies in a supporting role. Now, to be fair, the Deadline story did mention that there are other movies that he could be in. So, before I even get into the nuts and bolts of this thing, 
you might remember I've said this before. I don't know. I don't recall what episode it was on or anything like that. But I've talked about this before. I've talked about the fact that we're going to see Henry Cavill again. And I, I, I'm, it was mostly in reference to Shazam 2 and to Black Adam. I mean, they, they left the door wide open, wide open for Superman to appear in that movie. And I'm not sure. In the, in the little cameo, they didn't show him from the neck up. But that didn't say that Henry Cavill wasn't going to be Superman again, and it didn't say he was going to be Superman again. That wasn't some sort of confirmation one way or the other. That was just, you know, kind of getting out of having to pay a guy like Henry Cavill to show up in your movie for 30 seconds, if that. So that was a big part of that, I think. And, and, you know, there was still a big question mark surrounding it at the time, and having him show up there would have raised more, you know, ruckus than anything else. And did they test the waters on another Superman or do, do some looking into it? Maybe. I can't say that they did or they didn't. But it just seems like, and, and what did I say before? I was talking about The Witcher at one point, saying, you know, let's see how, because how popular The Witcher was, let's see if Warner Brothers all of a sudden goes, oh, oh, people really love Henry Cavill. Maybe, maybe we should reconsider. Maybe we should have him come back as Superman. And then he's been in a lot of other stuff that's been pretty popular since then as well. So, I mean, since he said the cape was still in the closet and the whole you know, debacle over whether or not he was leaving, which seems like forever ago. But the door was never completely closed, is my point. And this was always a potential option. And yeah, I think having so much popularity in some of these other projects absolutely 100% helped his cause. And, you know, I think that, you know, when when you let things breathe a little bit and over the course of time you realize, huh, you know what, all these movies that, that that I hated... Maybe it wasn't his fault, or maybe you shouldn't have hated him at all. But again, it, it's subjective. I'm not saying that you had to love him or, or to not, the movies that, that he was in as Superman. But, you know, I, I've always sp- spoken out about, about the fact that I've liked Man of Steel. Was it perfect? No, but I liked it. Batman versus Superman, I'm one of the few that didn't think that movie was terrible. Justice League I liked for my own reasons. And he was in all of those, and it just wasn't bad. And anything that was bad wasn't really his fault. I mean, he could be a little wooden at times, sure, but that that's a, that was my only critique of him at all. And is that him, or was that what he was given? Because he, he did not seem that way in some of the other stuff we've seen him in recently, right? He's certainly capable of a lot more. So I would not be surprised at all if this ends up being... 100% true, and this ends up happening. Of course, no comment from Warner Brothers or anything, so we'll just have to wait and see on this one. Here's something I don't want to wait for, and this is one of the things that I was worried about happening when the Snyder Cut was finally being announced to be released on HBO Max next year. Now, everybody and their brother and their sister and their cousin's former roommate is coming out and saying, oh, well, let's get the cut of this. Let's get the cut of that. It started with the David Ayer cut of Suicide Squad. Started with that. Now it's the four-hour Revenge of the Sith director's cut, right? Now it's also the, you know, the J.J. cut of Star Wars and all these other things. It's like, okay, this is what happens when you give a very whiny group what they want after so many years. You know, they finally wear you down. You give them what they want, and they still might not be satisfied with it, by the way. And that's the point. It's like, okay... So, for anybody that's calling for the David Ayer cut of Suicide Squad, is that gonna is more Joker really gonna turn the tide for you? Because I and I liked Suicide Squad. I don't care what anybody says. I liked it. Is having more Joker really gonna change your opinion of this movie? Is having a li- are, are are certain little changes here and there really gonna change your opinion of this movie? And, and I can't think of. I can think of maybe a handful of people that that even claim to say that they liked the Star Wars prequels. I happen to be one of them. Yeah, shut up. I actually liked not all of them and not everything about them. But yeah, I enjoyed them for what they were because that's what I do. And you know what? You want to judge me for that? You can do that. But I enjoy things 
for what they are. So, but do you really is seeing a four hour cut of Revenge of the Sith going to change your mind suddenly about that movie? You're like, oh, you know, now that it's four hours long and they have got all the stuff in there, yeah, it does make sense. I do like this movie. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think I really even have to say any more about that in particular. It's just like, when's it going to stop? Okay, like Blade Runner was another perfect example. There ended up being what, like, seventeen cuts of Blade Runner, and how much did it genuinely change your opinion of the movie, whether you liked it or you didn't like it? And even this, even for people that liked these movies, you want to see more. You know, stuff gets cut out for a reason. And I'm not saying that, you know, the decisions made for like Suicide Squad were the right ones as far as what was cut or any of these other movies. You know that that and I'm in seeing a director's vision come to light, I think is really, really important. And and it's and it sucks for me that that, you know, we don't get to see that all the time. But at the same time, these are not the only movies that this has ever happened to. You open this door and all of a sudden we've got cuts flying all over the place and it gets to the point where, you know, what's the point of cutting anything ever? And do you really want to you have to think this through. Do you want to sit through a four-hour movie? Do we need movies to be longer? I don't know that we do. So this is a this to me is very much a be careful what you wish for type of scenario. And if you do this, you're you're really setting yourself up to get bombarded on social media, and, and fans just are going to keep getting their way that maybe shouldn't get their way all the time. You know, and TV's guilty of this sometimes too because. You know, ever since, you know, Lucifer got saved and, and and Timeless got saved. And, you know, before that, it was Jericho years ago, right, with that fan campaign. Now everybody thinks every show should be saved that gets canceled. No, that's not the way entertainment works. Sometimes the good ones get canceled. And, and we just have to deal with it and be like, well, you know, at least we got a season or two seasons or whatever. And you got to be happy with that. Be happy with what you got. Because not everything's going to be... Because if everything's saved, we'll never get anything new. And that and that's the other thing. And do we want all this work and all this money to go into re, you know, reviving a cut of a movie that you didn't like in the first place so you can maybe like it this time? No. I, I mean, there's a lot of other stuff we could be doing. And I'm not sure that this is something that we need to be focusing on. So hopefully this... this doesn't really happen. I mean, it's going to happen again with other things. I realize that. But hopefully this doesn't become a growing trend because it absolutely does not need to be. Here's something, speaking of things that are actually on the move, and that's Cobra Kai. Season 3, not going to be on YouTube. It's actually going to be moving to another network or streamer. This according to Deadline once again, saying that Sony is shopping around Season 3 of Cobra Kai after YouTube's kind of in negotiations of releasing it. Because YouTube's basically moving away from original scripted programming. Moving away from it. All the other shows have been canceled pretty much. You know, Cobra Kai was their flagship show. It was a huge success in Season 1. Season 2 was a success as well. And guess what? Here's what's made... And I'm glad that they pointed this out in the story from Deadline, by the way. And Sony TV, very, very smart to start shopping this show... Now, because this is a show that it's done. It's in the can. It's been filmed. It's wrapped. It's done. And now with stuff potentially being on hold until who knows when, right? You get to shop a show that's already in the can that already has two other seasons attached to it as well, by the way, for fans to catch up on and getting those two seasons would be part of this deal. So you've already got something that's in the can that you can release basically whenever you want to or, or what, in, within whatever window that Sony presents with this. And it would be another avenue of programming that you can present during a pandemic when you don't know when you're going to be able to return to shooting anything again. It's brilliant because it makes you a hot commodity. So, And, and it's a popular show. It's not just any show, right? It's not like any show is going to get the same treatment. This is a show that is very, very popular with characters that people know that has a lot of nostalgia attached to it as well. This is a show that is a hit for a multitude of reasons. And now it is looking 
for a new home. And there's there's some other reports saying you know that Netflix and Hulu are the front runners now. I wouldn't rule out HBO Max. I don't think we can entirely rule them out completely. Maybe a little bit too much of a competitor for for Sony. Maybe they don't want to give Warner Brothers the satisfaction there. That, that That's certainly a possibility. But I, I certainly would not rule out HBO Max. But I, and, I, and Amazon could be a sleeper in this too, although Amazon seems to be doing pretty well on their own right now. But Netflix is on a roll. You have to admit that especially since all these stay-at-home orders and stuff have started, Netflix has really been on a roll. So it wouldn't surprise me if Netflix ends up being the home for Cobra Kai. But, you know, this is also contingent on getting more seasons, too. I can't imagine that somebody's going to pick up Cobra Kai for just season three, get the first two seasons. And then I think Sony's going to look for look for a home here that's going to want to do more than just this third season and be done with it. So whatever home that's going to end up being, and I don't see this happen. I don't see this going on any network TV or anything at all. It's not going to end up on network TV. It's not going to end up at a place like Showtime or, or HBO or anything like that. I just don't see it. This is going to end up on a streamer. Really, can, really interested to see which one it's going to be. Really quickly, speaking of the pandemic, it's hit another delay. The Star Wars, the High Republic publishing initiative that was going to be coming from Lucasfilm has officially been delayed until 2021 because of the coronavirus pandemic. And the reason, according to StarWars.com, is that they want to be able to have a celebration. They and this, is, and this is a big deal. It's, it's a new chapter in Star Wars storytelling, and it's through novels and comics and, and other avenues as well. They want to celebrate, and they want to make sure that they get it right. And if you have to delay something, say this about video games all the time, and I, I think it applies to publishing as well. If you're delaying something because you want to make sure that you get it right and it gets the hype that it deserves, I'm not going to fault you for that whatsoever. So you're going to have to wait until January of 2021 to get your hands on Star Wars, The High Republic, Light of the Jedi. That's the one that's going to kick things off. And then that'll follow with Star Wars, The High Republic, Into the Dark, February 2nd of 2021. So we're going to get stuff back to back. But that first Charles Soule novel is not going to be coming out until January of 2021. I don't know what kind of a celebration that they had planned or what it was that they what it is that they really want to do and why it's going to make that big of a deal. But if they think it is, then I, I got to roll with that. I, I have to take them at their word. And we're going to be looking for things to celebrate here pretty soon. We're, we are really going to be in the mood for celebrating. And, you know, who am I to fault Disney and Lucasfilm and everybody and Star Wars Publishing for wanting to capitalize on that? Because once we can have a, our first grand celebration, it's going to be a big one. And I think that Star Wars, the High Republic could absolutely capitalize on that hype. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, going to be talking about The Vast of Night. Both stars going to be joining me. We'll start with Jake Horowitz, who plays Everett, and then we'll move on to Sierra McCormick, who plays Faye Crocker. That's up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Cass Anvar, Alex Kamal from The Expanse, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Stay tuned. Taking you back to 1950s New Mexico because something weird is going on in the town. And who do you go for that information? Well, the local DJ, of course. It's Jake Horowitz, this is one of the stars of The Vast of Night. He plays Everett. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. I'm doing as good as can be. Happy to take a trip down, down memory lane to the 1950s. So, Jake, one of the things that jumped out about me, for me, for Everett, right away, was that he has such a larger-than-life personality. I don't know how anyone couldn't be drawn to him. So, what did you enjoy the most about playing him? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, um, What was I drawn most? I mean, I guess it's just like, if you know, if someone's really going to talk to people like that, it's just... He's got so much sort of charisma and gusto and, and belief that he is like the biggest fish in this very small pond. And that was just that was just fun to imagine that he's like the gatekeeper of rock and roll to this little town in New Mexico. Yeah. So as somebody who spent a lot of time in the radio business myself, I couldn't help but enjoy Everett's work and his surroundings. So what was it like to kind of bring back the golden age of radio? 
Oh, I'm so glad that you that you enjoyed that. That means a lot. I'm an authentic member of, of radio. Um, it was it was amazingly fun. I mean, sort of working with that technology does so much for you as an actor when you're just working with something that's completely, you know, from a different world. Like, you know, I, I had a reel-to-reel recorder in my hotel room while we were shooting. I could just, nice. you know, while I was memorizing my lines or thought of it, you know, going to sleep, you just sort of do that and get get my hands on what would have been his daily routine, which really is like the best kind of research because I find that sometimes, you know, bookish research can feel like, okay, well, I learned something, but how am I going to really implement it? And, and having things like that, like like the reel-to-reel, like the record player and like the music from the time uh, were just so, so, so helpful and fun. Now, the dynamic between Everett and Faye might be one of my favorite things about The Vast of Night. How do you think Everett would describe Faye to someone who hasn't met her yet? <laughs> Great question. I think he would say something like, oh, yeah, she's this, she's this squeamish little girl. She's got a crush on me, but oh, whatever she wants to learn about radio, maybe she'll be a, maybe she'll be a star. Uh, <laughs> it would sort of be some combination of some combination of putting her down and making her seem cooler than she is at the same time, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? No, that makes perfect sense. When people see the movie, that will make even more sense. So there's that. So Yeah, yeah. One of the things yeah. I really loved about this movie, actually, is how it's kind of presented to viewers as like a classic sci-fi movie, the movie of the week. So obviously, when you guys were shooting, that's something you probably wouldn't have seen yet. So how did you feel when you saw that presentation for the first time? Did it actually enhance your enjoyment of the movie, seeing it with those eyes? So, so much enhanced. I mean, the first time that me and Sierra saw the, the true final cut was at, was at Slamdance, so that was at the festival. And, and sort of seeing it with other people and seeing the... Uh, yeah, just all of these different technical aspects come together that make you really wonder what's what's out there. I mean, we knew that we we knew as actors from rehearsing with Andrew that that's what we were sort of going through as as characters. Whether or not that feeling was going to to affect the audience was you know it was like you just hope you just you just you just really hope it will. And then and seeing it with other people, you could feel that happening, and it was like the most just gratifying, wonderful experience. Talking to Jake Horowitz, who plays Everett in The Vast of Night, which you can see on Amazon Prime Video and in select theaters and drive-ins, too, by the way, on May the 29th. Now, Jake, when you're dealing with a mystery of the unknown in any movie, how and when that mystery is revealed is crucial. So without spoiling anything, how did you feel The Vast of Night dealt Mm. with that aspect of this story? Great question. I I think that it deals with that by, by, by never sort of like like popping out of the story and playing the end. Always, Andrew was talking to me and Sierra about stay in the moments of tension that Everett and Faye are in. It's like, you know, before you have an answer, you really don't have an answer. And you're always sort of curious and you're a little scared and you're a little excited. And to stay sort of in the like the stillness and the, the sort of building tension of that without you know and don't don't get crazy and sort of play the the overt excitement and that attitude and that stillness i think are what makes this reveal sort of work that that everett and say have really been sort of pent up and our nervous excitement and fear uh, have been building in them we talked about the traveling back in time a little bit so let's do that right now shall we if we could if you could travel back to the 1950s and bring one thing back with you and it wouldn't cause any ripples in history or the timeline or anything like that, what would it be? Mm, that's a great question. Oh, what would it be? Well, my first answer that pops in my mind was just Buddy Holly. Bring back Buddy Holly. Nice. Make him, and let, him, let him keep making music. I mean, I, I listen to that stuff just on repeat and getting ready. And I, yeah, hell yeah, I'm bringing him back. That's a, great, that's a great one. In his prime? Oh, in his prime. Oh, yeah. Yes, let, yes. Let, let him stay late 20s, early 30s forever. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> but, you know, I would like to see, actually, the, the songs that he would have written, as, you know, like a, as a sort of a John Prime as he got older. Uh, I, would totally, I would have loved to listen to those songs. Yeah, that would have been pretty neat, actually. Speaking of perfection in a certain way, how perfect does it feel to have this movie screening in drive-in movie theaters and kind of increase, <laughs> that are kind of increasing popularity right now? Yeah, it is. It is literally. It's so funny that we're releasing it in drive-ins because of the state of the world. It's like after it's been released, like, there's no other way that you should release this movie. It should it should be in drive-ins. That's the way that you should experience it. It's like it feels all too perfect, and I, I just feel super lucky that it's going to get to have this 
this life in this moment as, as sort of a, a theatrical release and drive-ins, and then people are going to get to, to watch it on their own. I think it's great. Now, Jake, before I let you go, you all have gotten a chance to show The Vast of Night at some film festivals. You mentioned Sundance and have probably been getting lots of reactions to the movie for almost a year now, actually. So now that the movie's coming on something huge like Amazon Prime Video, how do, how do you, is it going to feel to get those initial re- reactions to your story, your characters, and the twists from a whole new audience? I really, really can't wait. I think that it's such a unique ambitious and moving and sort of eerily beautiful movie and just you know that it's that it's going to reach as wide of an audience as it's going to reach is like you know you just just that's that's the dream that's the most exciting thing about about making movies is that you have the opportunity to to sort of affect so many people and um i think now in the sort of state of unknown that we are it's a really great it's a really great thing to sit with to sit with what what might be out there you know and I think this is a movie that's definitely going to sit with you once you see it. The Vast of Night is going to be available on Amazon Prime Video on May the 29th. You can also see it at select theaters and select drive-ins, hopefully near you. It's Jake Horowitz. Wait till you see Everett and this guy. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much. It was great talking to you. So sure, we could take out our fancy cell phones and call each other, but we're going back to the 1950s talking about The Vast of Night, so we're going to have to dial the operator. It's a good thing we have her. With us right now, it's Faye Crocker herself. Sierra McCormick, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm probably, you know, not the best operator anymore. I think I forgot most of the switchboard knowledge I used to know. Well, luckily that's not really a problem here in 2020 now that you're back with us in the present time. Right. Yeah, right. I was like, ah, I probably won't ever need to know how to do this again. Hey, you know, hey, this is a funky world we're living in right now, Sierra. Who knows? Yeah, right. Times are weird. Who knows? Maybe I will have to know how to operate a switchboard again, in which case I'll have a pretty considerable advantage. There you go. There you go. Now, Sierra, seeing the movie for the first time for somebody like me and reacting to it is one thing, but your first impression would have been from the script. So when you read it for the first time, what was your reaction? Well, my reaction is I was floored, you know, like scripts like that, you know, don't come, you know, my way, you know, all that often. They don't come by every day. And characters like Faye for actresses certainly don't come along every day. And then just, you know, in the script, it was so, so clear that, you know, Andrew, the director, had a clear vision for the film and it was very prevalent on on the page. You know, there's camera direction. There was all kinds of just very expressive sort of language to really paint the picture you know, just by reading the script. And so I had a pretty good idea of how the movie would look and feel just from reading it, which, you know, was very exciting that I could, you know, discern all of that just from this very rich, well-written script. And then also just, you know, the character of Faye and the arc that she gets to have, you know, throughout the movie was super appealing. And so I just said to myself, I was like, I need to do everything in my power to make sure I get to be a part of this. Let's talk about that for a second, actually, because I feel like Faye grows so much as a character over the course of the movie from beginning to end. So what was your favorite thing about her? My favorite thing about her? I mean, there's so many. I mean, part of also what drew me to the character of Faye is that she reminds me a lot of my younger sister. And so a lot of, you know, my sort of portrayal of her is based, you know, in part on my on my younger sister. Um, So a lot of those qualities that, you know, Faye has, my younger sister also has. So it makes sense for me to love them. So Faye's, you know, unbridled enthusiasm, her optimism, her, you know, excitement about the future, the fact that she's so unapologetic about her interests and she loves to talk to anyone who will listen about all the stuff that she's interested in. You know, those qualities were just, you know, so wonderful and appealing to me because, you know, it's it's an instinct to hide parts of ourselves, especially if they're considered, you know, different or weird, you know, for the time. And, you know, Faye being a a female in the 1950s in a small town, I'm sure science and technology was not an interest. She was super encouraged to really, you know, explore. And despite that, you know, she's still so excited to talk about it to anyone. And so, you know, like I said, unapologetic about all of her interests and all of her beliefs and all of her sort of, you know, quirks, you know, she just doesn't try to hide parts of herself, you know, for the sake of other people, which I really admired about her. And also just the fact that she gets to have this wonderful arc where in the beginning, you know, beginning of the movie, she's so hesitant to assert herself and so timid. And then by the end, she's leading this adventure. That was such an amazing sort of arc that, you know, I got to read. And then I was, you know, once I read it, I was like, oh, it'll be such a fun 
sort of just, I don't know, change to get to portray over time, over the course of the movie. Now, we were kidding around about switchboard operators a couple seconds ago, but there's some people that really don't even know that they even existed and how important they actually were. But I kind of took this angle when I was watching Faye. Do you kind of right. feel like watching her work actually brought out more of a community feel to the town that we otherwise might not have seen in the movie? Yeah, absolutely, because, you know, the switchboard is like the hub of all communication in this town. And so you kind of realize how one, like, integral that job is to, like, just the town, you know, spreading information and communicating with each other. And two, just, you know, the sort of small town shorthand that everyone sort of uses in the film sort of, you know, illustrates that. And then also just the way that she sort of, you know, is so familiar with every single person that she's able to call in the town, just lets you know the sort of dynamic that the town must have, you know, that maybe you're not privy to, you know, all this other context, you know, in the movie, but through Faye, you know, through her, she's like this communication hub. You can kind of see how all the rest of the town interacts with each other. Yeah, I never thought about that, but that is actually a quite a revealing sort of aspect of the town. Talking to Sierra McCormick, who plays Faye Crocker in The Vast of Night, which you can see on Amazon Prime Video on May the 29th, select theaters and drive-ins as well, too, by the way. Now, Sierra, have you ever heard a sound that you could not explain coming from your phone or your radio that kind of freaked you out? And if so, did you actually try to figure out what it was? I'm trying to think because, you know, most of the time growing up, like the house settling would kind of freak me out, but... You know, I grew up in Palm Springs. It was so hot. Like, Mm -hmm. my mom explained, you know, the sun, like, sort of expands of the house and it has to, you know, like, it's cold. It kind of, you know, shrinks back up or whatever. And that kind of, I guess, explained it to me. But I don't think I've ever heard, like, an upsetting No, Actually, the other day when the um, there was, like, a I live in L.A. and I live in an apartment in Hollywood. And so I heard, like, a, a big jet or something flying over. And it did not sound like a commercial airliner. So I was just like, oh, no, but my instinct was not to check it out. I was like, okay, I got to go. I got to run. <laughs> so maybe I'm just more, I'm like safety-minded, I guess, or just survival-minded instead of maybe <laughs> well, figuring out what it is. With, with everything going on right now, can you can you blame you? I mean, you, I wouldn't go to the window right now. I'm not right? sure. Right, like know? if I'm a little paranoid. <laughs> yeah, if I'm a little, you know, nervous. <laughs> No one might be a little, lot more. I don't know. No one can blame me there. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> now I'm going to ask you this, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot to choose from. But did you have a favorite scene or favorite line from Faye that comes to mind that you can actually tell us about without spoiling anything? Yes, actually. Um, so all of the dialogue, as you see it in the movie, is almost all completely verbatim the way it was written in the script. However, I have the only ad lib in the entire movie. (laughs) And I'm pretty proud of it. It's one of my favorite lines. So there's a scene where um, Everett is driving and Faye's in the car, and he said that whoever can help us identify the sound will win a free piece of Elvis's carpet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we kind of have this, like, back-and-forth conversation about, uh, you know, are you going to give him a piece of Elvis's carpet? (laughs) Everett eventually reveals to me that it's not real. It's not actually Elvis's carpet. And I say... um, Everett, you know, people really think that's Elvis's carpet. That's lying. That's that's my favorite line because, like, we were trying to figure out, you know, something to say in that time because we were in the car and we were trying to get from one location to the other and there was, like, this dead space and stuff like that. And so Andrew was like, well, if you can think of something, like, maybe I'll let you get an ad lib in there. And so I thought of that and he let it in. So Nice. Nice. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, props. <laughs> there you go. Now, actually, speaking of not spoiling anything, yeah. I, I still have to ask. Even after all this time, mm-hmm. you've lived with this movie for, for over a year now. How much do you still think about that ending? Yeah, a lot. In fact, it, like I've seen the movie many, many, many times. But every time I do see the movie, the, the reveal, the ending, like never fails to send like a shiver through me. Like it's crazy. I don't usually get such a visceral reaction from, you know, movies in general, you know, especially ones that I've seen so many times. But for whatever reason, there's just something so like, real and jarring about it that like it never fails to actually like give me a shiver kind of like scare me a little bit oddly enough so i think you know that's a testament to how how well andrew sort of executed the ending that it still gives me a shiver even after i've seen it for like the 25th time (laughs) so now you were talking about everett and Faye being in the car together and one of the things that i loved about their relationship in this story was it didn't feel forced and it didn't feel like anything I'd seen like a million times in a million movies before. So when you think about the two of them, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? 
uh, banter, camaraderie. Like they have this wonderful rapport with each other where like, you know, you know, Everett and Faye aren't afraid to disagree with each other and maybe like bicker for a moment about who's right. And so they have this wonderful relationship that I was also struck by when I read the script because, you know, the whole time I was reading the script, I was like, oh, say like for some romantic sort of like Mm -hmm. subplot in here with this or like if they make Faye and Everett like kiss or something at the end, I'm gonna be so mad and it never happened. So I was like, oh, how like refreshing is that? It's like this wonderful, just sort of platonic friendship that these two like teenagers have and they just go on this adventure with each other. I don't know. I was, I was also really struck and impressed with their relationship. And then I think even more so like getting to work with Jake and getting to rehearse with Jake and hang out with Jake. I think we got to really develop our own sort of camaraderie and our own sort of banter and rapport. And, you know, a lot of it sort of bleeds through on on the screen. (laughs) So Sierra, before I let you go, there's really no wrong answers here for this one, but do you think the best way to watch (laughs) the vast of night, is it a drive-in or at home with the lights off? Hmm. I would say I'm, I'm a huge like film nerd and stuff like that. So I'm very particular about my viewing experience. So I would say you should see it at the drive-in for the nostalgia and for the effect and for the audio, because having the, the dialogue and all the storytelling come through your radio, actually like a radio play the way it is in the film is really, really fun and really adds like a lot of just like this whole other aspect of viewing the film. But I think for the visuals and for the, you know, the tone, I think at home with the lights off is also a very viable way to watch it. So really, it could go either way. It depends on what you want. <laughs> like I said, there's no wrong answers here. I, I, I got to tell you, if I had to drive in anywhere near me, I would absolutely do both. Yeah, right. I was, I was lucky enough to be able to attend one of the drive-in uh, screenings because there's one kind of in Southern California that wasn't too far. And it, like I said, it was a really, really fun experience. And like I said, the audio, the way it comes through on your actual car radio is like such a wonderful way to view the film, I think. It kind of really engages you and puts you in Everett and Faye's like, shoes a lot more. Where you definitely going to want to keep your eyes and your ears all over the vast of night, whether you're watching it on Amazon Prime Video on May the 29th, or at a drive-in or a select theater near you. Like I said, any way you go, there is no wrong answer here. And wait till you see her. You're going to love her. It's Sierra McCormick, <laughs> Faye Crocker herself. Thank you so much for joining me this week. No, thank you. This is wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm telling you guys, if you liked what you heard from Sierra McCormick right there, and of course before that, Jake Horowitz, you are going to love The Vast of Night. These two characters, of Faye Crocker and Everett, are characters you are absolutely going to be drawn to. You're going to fall in love with these characters. And the mystery that is in this episode, it's so simple, it's so subtle, but it works so, so well. And it will definitely keep you interested and keep you captivated throughout this movie. You're not going to want to miss The Vast of Night, which is streaming right now on Amazon Prime Video. Maybe you can find it at a theater near you if you've got a theater open. If you've got a drive-in, it's being shown at select drive-ins. As well, this is one that you're definitely not going to want past you. You're not going to want to let this one pass you by. It is. I, I just loved it from start to finish. You're not going to want to miss this. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thank you so much to Sierra McCormick and Jake Horowitz for joining me this week to talk about The Vast of Night. If you want more information on the movie and on other stuff as well, go to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Dot com. You know you can always follow along with me on social media as well, at DownAndNerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram, and at DownAndNerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.